0: 3CR broadcasts on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of the First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. Sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR
1: Breakfast.
2: Oh, new news, analysis That's and current man. affairs. Monday to Friday, seven AM until eight thirty AM.
3: Early double.
4: Good morning. Good
0: morning. Good morning. How's everyone doing? How are your weekends? Yeah, good.
4: Good. How's yours?
0: Yeah, pretty good. Uh, so on Saturday, I went along to a festival and camping uh, held to protest the removal of some trees in Gandolfo Gardens. So that mm-hmm. was a really nice event, uh, despite the circumstances. Really po- uh, positive mm-hmm. um, and a fun thing to be a part of. And there were a turn- lot of people there? Yeah. Yeah, good turnout. Um, I think there were going to be people who were there for a long time. Um, so people coming and going throughout the day. Um, but it was nice, a good mix. We had music, uh, children's story corner. Um, and all the kids started setting up their tents as I was leaving. So, oh like, yeah, wow, very... so you didn't stay for the camping. <laughs> I didn't stay for the whole night. No. <laughs> yeah.
4: Oh, amazing! So when did it start?
0: Uh, so it started about four o'clock. Um, and, you got and yeah, there. they were just yeah got there just after four, left around seven thirty, and they're all setting up their tents. And, oh, um, what was the energy like? Yeah, really positive. Um, people were frustrated, I think, because it's been going on for quite a while. They've had quite a few events. Um, and just a general lack of consultation all round, I think. Mm. Um, but a really nice uh, group of people from the community here, all um, following the same idea. Mm.
5: Even the, they sort of try to sneak in construction, um, sneak sneak it past them last Sunday, and then yeah,
0: get... yeah, that's right. They actually had to move the location, so it was supposed to be at Gandolfo Gardens, um, but they've fenced the whole area off, so you can't get in now. Um, so we're just up the road
5: um, in Coburg. Oh, okay, but I didn't. I didn't realize that. So the whole area is. F- yeah, f- like
0: yeah. That. You can't get it not legally anyway. <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh gosh, I have to talk to your um your buddy that came on the other week to talk James about Conway. it. Yeah, we'll, yeah we'll, James we'll, is
0: there.
5: <laughs> we'll get him on again.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. It'd Be good to keep an eye on what's going on there. Definitely. And Paddy, what about your weekend?
5: Mine was pretty good, pretty tame. Not no camping <laughs> for me. Uh, what What about you? What did you get up to? Are
4: yeah, what? I went to Geelong for the first time, which was. Fun. Oh, um, no, yeah, never been before. I was surprised to see camels. There oh, are camels okay. <laughs> okay. on the <laughs> beach. I didn't know yes, I was just walking along and they're doing these camel rides, and that surprised me. <laughs> I know what brought you down to Geelong. Um, my friend puts on, or my friend of a friend, puts on an event each year, and it's um, it's to try and get people to go to the the local pubs in Geelong. Um, and not go into Melbourne. So I tried to keep people in Geelong for as long as possible. Oh. Sort of, yeah. So all for and, a and, cause. And, Yeah, kind mm-hmm. of prom- trying to promote um, Geelong's local scene rather than everyone heading into Melbourne to, for the cool vibes. Yeah. So Yeah, it was really good. And I hadn't been before, so it was nice to see, yeah, a completely different place and some really good local pubs.
5: Was well, this expensive like the train ride, I reckon that would be able to deter you from going all the way into Melbourne. Yeah, what is that? I've not, I'm not, I didn't get the train. Probably be like an hour, over an hour, I guess.
4: Is it expensive?
5: Not ex- uh, not expensive. I misspoke, but like. Long, oh right, yeah. long. Yeah. Expensive for your night, you know, yeah. it, taking that out of your night.
4: Mm. <laughs> mm. I reckon we're going to get straight into it today. Yeah,
5: you, let's do it. Yeah. So you remember last year, um, the show covered a pretty alarming story about plans to drill for oil in the Great Australian Bight. I just wanted to revisit that story um, first up. The last time we reported on the story was in November 2019, and it was good news. Equinor, the Norwegian company that wanted to drill in the Bight, had their environmental plan rejected by the Australian offshore oil and gas authority, Nopsema. But in late December, Nopsema approved the oil... Jo- all Giant's um, new environmental plan, which means there's only two more approvals needed for, drill, for drilling to begin in the bite, And that's a region of, like, huge biodiversity. And if there was a spill in that, it, it could reach all the way up to New South Wales. It's really terrible. So in light of this, we're going to revisit that interview that um, Monday Breakfast legend Judith did with... The
4: legend that is Judith.
5: <laughs> <laughs> and sorely missed. Um, and she did that interview with Jeff Hansen, Managing Director of Sea Shepherd and part of the Great Australian Bite Alliance. And we'll hear from Jeff why the community really needs to turn its attention to this issue. And Judith started by asking him about how the Great Australian Bite Alliance got together.
6: Sea Shepherd formed a part of the Great Australian Bite Alliance back in 2015. And that was in response to BP's plans to drill for oil in the Bite. We all know what BP caused in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, back in 2010, the world saw the worst oil spill that occurred in waters far shallower and uh, less remote than in our Great Australian Bight. The Gulf of Mexico, it's quite an industrialised area. Plenty of support vessels and rigs to drill relief wells. Yet with all that infrastructure there, that blowout in which was an initial test drill, exploratory drilling, that took 87 days to cap the well and almost $5 million. Barrels of oil went into the ocean, and um, almost 7,000 boats were involved in that cleanup effort. So, when BP were looking at doing drilling for oil in the bite, we thought, well, if there's a blowout, it's game over for the bite because there is no infrastructure to handle a spill. There is nothing there. It'd it just be spray dispersing everywhere, and then as quick as you can, try and get a capping stack there. which you know, a minimum of 35 days away just to get it to the area and then try and get it into a location which was two or three kilometres down below the the surface.
7: And the dispersants themselves have their own problems, as we've seen with the Montara oil spill.
6: That's right, and the same dispersants that were used there were the ones used in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, One of them called Corexit, and that made the spill 52 times more toxic, which had a devastating impact on marine life, fisheries, the environment, and still does today but even um, made people sick um, just simply going down into the into the beach. And it was all covered on a big um, investigative journalism piece on uh, on 60 Minutes. But BP spill modelling showed that it could reach much of southern Australia and then Equinor's spill modelling has further highlighted that as well. But our expedition with the Steve Irwin um, in 2016 to the Bight, uh, with the Great Australian Bight Alliance and, and Merning Elder Bunalori and Peter Owen, we showcase what we would all lose if there was a spill in that region, and I can tell you the bite is nothing short of remarkable. Yes, and
7: I have most... been there. It's, it's gorgeous. Yes.
6: When we were researching this trip, looking at where we were going to take the ship, what areas we are going to showcase, places like Noitz Reef. St. Francis Isles and, and Pearson Isle, and 17 kilometres off the coast. Trying to look up these places, there was very little information online about them.
7: We don't even know what we're going to lose because people don't know, <laughs> other than your film, of course, which we can uh, post a link to on our website. There's so much there that is at risk.
6: You go to places like Head of where you've got the Nullarbor Cliffs that stretch from 80 to 100 metres vertical and go for 100 kilometres long. Below that area, you've got this beautiful turquoise ocean, and one of the world's most significant southern right whale nurseries. And you can stand there and count fifty, sixty mother and calf bears with your naked eye. And then further out to sea, you've got deep sea canyons, the upwelling of nutrients. You've got seals, dolphins, penguins, whales, fin whales, humpbacks, blue whales.
7: Sounds amazing.
6: If you can push aside the environmental risk and push aside the fact of, you know, where we're headed now with with our climate, you know, we're in the climate emergency right now globally. Pushing aside that, just from the impacts of, of the economy, South Australia alone, the BITE provides over 10,000 plus jobs in the fisheries and tourism sectors in excess of $2.1 billion, all yes. for putting at risk for an exploratory drilling operation from a company in Norway. So it just doesn't stack up at all.
7: So Equinor has 21 days to respond to the concerns raised by Nopsema. are they going to be able to do that?
6: It's a lot of information for Equinor to provide, I'm hopeful that they will do the right thing by the Great Australian Blight where 85% of the marine life there is globally unique, do the right thing by our kids in any chance in a livable climate and cease their plans to drill for oil. But uh, another option could be to ask for an extension for more time. We should acknowledge that Nopsema are are definitely doing the right thing here and, and really Really looking over this for the fine tooth cone because if it goes wrong in the bite it goes wrong for everyone it was the Australian government that granted leases for oil companies to drill for oil in the bite and it was interesting that, you know, under Labor and Martin Ferguson, it now works for the oil and gas company...
7: Yeah, that, that's an interesting one, isn't it? The number of ex-politicians who are now working for oil and gas or other um, companies that uh, were related to their portfolios when they were in office.
6: Until that changes, we're going to be unfortunately fighting these sorts of fight. The leases, for instance, for BP, uh, were granted in just a matter of months after their big oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico.
7: Just doesn't make sense. Well, we shouldn't
6: need these. Conservation and environment groups and communities to come together and raise awareness about this stuff. You know, we should have you know governments that actually put the natural world first because we're seeing the impacts that we're having on our planet. We're in the sixth extinction. It's called the Homo by scientists because it's caused by us. We know the issues with climate. We can't go on living this way.
7: Is it time now for the government to step in and say enough? Equinor has been given a good run. Let's uh, put a halt to it.
6: I wish that was. Has. Unfortunately, looking at previous examples, Woodside Petroleum, looking at putting a big gas up through the humpback nursery off the Kimberley, looking at BP and looking at Chevron pulling out in the bite, it's never been governments that have pulled the plug on these projects. It's always community and, and conservation and councils, in this case, putting pressure on the companies to do the right thing. And I think that's just because we have governments in power where they have a lot of political donations that have come from these industries.
7: What will the Great Australian Bite Alliance be doing now while we're waiting for Equinor to come up with its next environmental plan or ask for another extension?
6: Well, on the 23rd of November, we're having a big sort of National Day of Action, sending a message to Norway and to Equinor that you have no social licence to operate here. There's over 16 councils opposing oil and gas in the bite, and there's the community, there's the conservation groups, there's the indigenous you know, leaders and, and elders all standing up to protect our Great Australian bite and opposition of Equinor. And so there'll be a bunch of paddle outs events right around the country, and those looking at getting involved can just go to fightforthebite.org.au and there's a map that comes up and they can find out how to get involved and come along.
5: You're listening to Monday Morning Breakfast, and that was our own legend, Judith Peppard interviewing Jeff Hansen, the director of Sea Shepherd and part of the Great Australian Bite Alliance, and that was back in November last year. So it is really unfortunate to hear about that um, new development. And we can all um, get involved, you know, by following them on the social medias and their website and really follow that story. Next, we're going to play a song called Bird by Felicity Groom.
2: So de ven
5: That so was power by Les Amazon'sfraki, and what are we going to hear next Alex um,
4: So just on topic today, really as as we spoke before, Ella went to the um, Gandalfal Gardens and about the trees being cut down there, and it's invasion day, obviously on Sunday, so we just wanted to highlight an interview that happened last year with Auntie Sandra Onus, um, and she spoke to Gavin Moore about the Chukwurrung campaign to save the sacred trees from destruction by the state government's Western Highway extension. And I think it's important to just have uh, remember the other campaigns that are going on and the big ones, and the smaller ones as well. So, yeah, and for the activists out there, and we've had one person phone in today already, and thank you, but I didn't grab your name, so I'm sorry about that. Um, We want to try and bring a little bit more of an update for the Gandolfo Gardens um, activists out there, and yeah, so this is Auntie Sandra Onus and Gavin Moore speaking at Invasion Day last year.
10: Now, the trees have uh, several purposes, from birthing to shelter to workplaces. Um, the significance, I would say, is very high in that. They have been culturally modified. A report has been done by the expert on culturally modified trees, and um, there's a wealth of uh, cultural heritage material as well, because the area hasn't been hasn't been um, looked at in a proper manner. These sites haven't been afforded the protection they should have, and indeed, one wonders over. Six to a thousand years. How many babies would have been born in the what we call the mother tree? And it's a beautiful tree and um, very important. I mean, how beautiful is that? And and this has been has never been a real public thing, although non-Indigenous people. Have even been involved in trying to protect them over the years. One old lady who recently passed away in her 90s, uh, she chained herself to to one of the trees to try to stop the uh, roads from destroying it. Um, you don't hear much about it. But our cultural heritage is being constantly eroded all in the name of, not just sick roads, but in the name of of tourism and for all sorts of intents and purposes. We've got three camps up there. We have the embassy, where DT and Mandy are, and then we have the uh, women and children's one, and then we have another camp protecting the... And a very uh, important tree. Now they've been there three or four months, and um, some of them that are there haven't left. They've been there from the, the first day. Yep. And now that the federal government isn't going to um, use any of their legislation to help us protect them, um, we have no other choice but to hopefully get interlocutory release and head into the the legal arena, into the courts. And we don't hold much hope here in Victoria. Victoria has never been in any shape or form honest in their legal opinions of Aboriginal people and their connections with the country Folly. So we'll probably end up in the federal arena, which will be the High Court. And... um, We still don't have a lot of hope, but we hold more hope there than we do here, which is Buckley's and Mum, Mm. Victoria. We offered them an alternative. Um, We had an alternative. was done at, you know, great expense. And um, that's been just... They don't even mention it. And it also would have saved them money. Now, we believe that... uh, They were so arrogant enough to... They gave the contractors all the contracts, and, of course, the contractors have employed their mates, and they've got mates' rates, and all that things come into play at the detriment of Aboriginal people, at the detriment of our cultural heritage, and um, we're not going to lie down and take it. As I said, we have three camps there, and we're asking for assistance we can get. We need people to go up there now and, and help us to protest whilst the weather is a lot better. Um, we have to get ready for the winter again. Um, we 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 have limited accommodation so if anybody can bring their own tents or even caravans or you know, whatever. Ararat, I might add, is one of the coldest places in Victoria, <laughs> and I mean cold to get below one. You know, so expect it. But yeah, no, we need as much help as we can get, and if you can't come up and help us protest, perhaps you can donate. There's a page on. Um, we have a page on Facebook that uh, people can donate money to for the trees. I think that's basically been put out before. Um, we're very low on funds now, and um, we we try to keep funds in there for people like elders. Yes. We can accommodate them in town so they're not camping out. Although we're well, not too bad now. See, there's no need for this fact of rich. and I mean, that's, that's our history you know, when you think about the little babies that were born in the trees tree, <laughs> tree it, it, it just it's just amazing that that it's even still there today. And I might add that these particular ones are only there because non indigenous people have stood their ground and said no. Mm-hmm. You know, indeed the the government's given more credence to um, the sun more than they do to to what we what we think, and what we believe, and um, enough's enough. It's got to stop.
4: And that was Auntie Sandra Onus speaking to Gavin Moore about the Chupwarron campaign to save the sacred trees from destruction by the state government's Western Highway extension last year on Invasion Day 2019. And we're gonna have some voices from the ground um on the event that Ella went to at the Save Gandolfo Gardens. The Save Gandolfo Gardens. And it was at a reserve in Coburg. The name of the reserve's gone out of my head now, but we'll um, we'll update you on exactly where that was. But you can just head down to the gardens, um and show your support. There'll be people camping out there, and there'll be people actively there in this last week, especially, and just following that that um, that event. So, yeah, do head down there and do catch up on Facebook as well. It's um, the Guardians of the Gandalfour Gardens, and they are active and they are posting and they are welcome to questions as well. So, do check that out. And we're we'll soon, yeah, we'll soon have those voices for you.
5: Fantastic! Such a environmentally conscious show this morning. We've got another song for you, Kids by Abby May.
2: 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program, featuring information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855 AM.
0: And now we're going to listen to some recordings from the camp and I went to on the weekend. Uh, So everyone was down um, at the park to protest the Better Level Crossings Project um, and in particular the removal of several trees. So I just had a chat to a few different people
1: to ask why they were there. So my name's Sue Bolton and I'm here because I want to save these trees in Gandalfa Gardens. And some of them are over 100 years old. They should not be chopping down trees right at this moment when tens of thousands of trees up the east coast of Australia have been burnt um, in the bushfires. I think it's just outrageous that they're considering chopping these trees down. Um, And also, these trees don't need to be chopped down. That's the outrageous thing, is we know, we've found from multiple sources that there are alternative construction methods that could be used which could save the trees and probably if um, there was an Anzac memorial or something in the park they would probably use those alternative construction methods because it's just trees they're not refusing to even talk to us discuss those alternative construction methods and just wanting to plough ahead and bulldoze the trees and the trees um, You know, then they don't just provide shade, although they do provide shade. They also provide habitat. So, and that's really important, especially at a time. You know, in the cities, we're short short of places where, you know, all sorts of different animals can, you know, find shelter um, and create natural habitats for wildlife. So, our wildlife is really critically important as well as the shade. So, I think. You know, we really have to save the trees. It's totally unnecessary. I think what what this whole campaign's been about, it's a lesson in how governments and corporations have a plan and they go through consultation as a totally token thing. Um, And the consultation here has been totally token. It's not the only consultation that's totally token. Uh, I mean, they do lots of token consultations. When they've got a plan, they might pick up a couple of little trivial changes, um, but in the substantial issues that might be raised with them about why the plan is problematic or needs to be changed, they just simply have tin ears or blocked ears, refuse to listen and just plough ahead, hoping that people will have forgotten about the the issue by the time of the next election. Um, So that's really what they're doing. But the campaign last week was fantastic, with so many members of the local community coming out, people who've never been involved in protests in their life, let alone civil disobedience protests in their life. So, um, yeah, it was great.
8: I'm here because I just can't believe that there's, um, that they're not considering another solution or just moving, um, moving their plans to the station a little bit further. And I just think in this day and age, we know too, too well how the trees are really important and to have such established trees. I just I just think it's unforgivable to chop down such established trees and ruin the habitat for the creatures. Yeah, it creates a whole new feel to the space to have something that's bigger than you, bigger than the houses, um, to provide shade and to see the birds in them. Um, oh, gosh, it, it's, it's more than words can describe to have established trees and to think that you can just plant new ones. It's going to take decades and they might not ever really take... And with climate change, it's going to be harder and harder for trees to, to survive the heat waves. My name's Sylvia, and I'm just here supporting everyone um, Yeah, with this ridiculous thing that's happening uh, with the trees. It's really sad, so yeah, just here to show my support. My community, and yeah, I, I think it's just really wrong um, what they're doing. They're, not listening to the community, they're in a hurry to get it done. I feel like it's more politically based um, as well, Um, you know, so that the government can say, you know, they can add it to the list and say, this is another thing that we've done when we were in office. Um, So, yeah, it's just really sad and I think it's really wrong. I live in Coburg, and, yeah, I think it's shocking and I really hope they don't get away
4: with it. There is a bit of optimism today with various speakers, but, yeah, no, I hope they don't get... They're very significant trees, and they should be left alone. I think in this day and age, with fires burning and trees going, we need every tree we can get, and those
9: trees are... I I don't know how old they are, but they're significant, large, very large trees, so...
3: The space is really valued by the community, but also the project could have thought to sit down and truly listen to the community rather than conduct a sort of managed public relations exercise and call it consultation. The community clearly want more effort going into saving some trees. They will accept the loss of some. It's inevitable perhaps that trees that are right up against the line will have to go. I think that the community would be prepared to lose quite a bit if there was a genuine two-way exchange of views. But that hasn't really happened. And so I think that because the LXRP has been behaving a bit more like a a polished juggernaut, they're triggering this kind of response in a community that really wants to be listened to and not taken for granted.
8: I've been working on this uh, protest for about 18 months now. It's been a bit of a battle, but I think we're finally starting to make headway. In some regards it does look awful because the park has been fenced off. But the good news is that the word is actually getting out and we're getting a lot of support about saving the trees.
0: Save gardens, it
2: makes good sense to me.
8: that the state of Victoria
4: want to treat it with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our
8: sacred sites.
3: War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons.
9: Subscribe to 3CR in 2019
0: fighting for social justice and environmental change.
10: And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't.
0: Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.
2: Hello. Follow the sun.
4: now we're going to be speaking to Kevin Tollhurst. So Dr. Kevin Tollhurst is an Honorary Associate Professor in Fire Ecology and Management in the Department of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences at the University of Melbourne and provides expert advice on fire behaviour. And so Kevin has recently written an article questioning whether another bushfire royal commission is actually worth having. So Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today.
9: Good morning, Alice.
4: Good morning. And in your article, you talk about the many Royal Commissions that there's already been following bushfire disasters. Um, so just how many have there been?
9: Well, we've had 57 since 1939, so that's nearly one every second year. So it's uh, quite a substantial number of uh, inquiries and they're quite expensive and take a lot of time to to uh, perform. So <laughs> I, I really don't see the need that to have another if we were to implement what we already know.
4: Mm. And yeah, d- does much of it get implemented afterwards or what, what happens to them once they've spent millions of dollars finding out <laughs> <Yeah>. stuff?
9: <laughs> well it's really interesting because what happens with all these inquiries is then distilled down after weeks and weeks or even months of uh, inquiry gets distilled down to a few recommendations and mm. what happens is the what the basis of those recommendations gets lost a bit. And so there might be a recommendation, uh, for example, about land management. And the what is behind that might be quite detailed based on all the evidence that's produced. Uh, but then the agencies, the, the government or the, the agencies will sort of do something in the area of management and tick that box and saying, yes, we've addressed that recommendation. But what they haven't really uh, addressed is what the what was behind that, the intent, what the outcome was that was expected uh, by putting that recommendation there and that's what we really need to look at. It's not whether or not they've been addressed, it's whether or not the the outcomes that were intended from the various inquiries have actually been achieved and in many cases they haven't.
4: Mm. And you also write about, um, quite frankly, about the 2009 Victorian Bushfires Royal Commission following the Black Sat- following Black Saturday, and I, I had a read of it and just the summary, and it said, um, a part of the opening statement said, we need to learn from the experiences of Black Saturday and improve the way we prepare for and respond to bushfires, and so that's mm. 2009. Was much implemented after that Royal Commission?
9: Um. Yeah, look, there was quite a bit done. Mm. I guess in particular what was uh, improved dramatically is the the, the speed with which uh, messages and um, warnings are, are put out and the nature of those uh, messages and warnings. Um, and so that side of thing has actually improved a lot. There's been a lot better coordination between uh, the fire and land management agencies in, in their response. There's now a, a single person in Victoria that is basically responsible for all emergencies and so the coordination is better. So there's certainly things that have improved uh, as a result, but there are still some areas around planning and and the use of fire in the landscape which um, haven't really met the mark that was intended by the the Commission.
4: Mm. And do developments in technology, do that tend to also prevent or help with the responses regarding bushfires?
9: Yeah look I guess um, there's a lot of focus on the response to bushfires and to me the biggest issue is about uh, preventing the bushfires in the first place and making sure that the the landscape and the people that live in the landscape aren't impacted to the extent they are. But the problem with technology tends to be that it's seen as a solution in itself. So for example large air tankers, um, so many people see that as some sort of grand solution to fires. And we've, if we need more evidence, I don't know why, uh, but we can see that those large air tankers are pretty ineffective at stopping these large fires. They might be able to save a few houses here and there, but it's probably costing you a million dollars a house to, to save them. Um, so instead of using technology, we could. We, what we need is probably better people on the ground uh, throughout the year doing work to prevent the fires and the impact in the first place rather than trying to uh, put some sort of uh, barrier between um, the people and the environment and the fires when they're way out of control and the amount of energy being released is far in excess of anything that we can deal with as humans.
4: Mm. And what does that look like um, if there were people on the ground throughout the year making sure, like kind of maintaining the land and with bushfires in mind?
9: Yeah, well, one of the, the problems that we have, I guess, is that there's a... Even amongst a lot of the scientific community, but especially amongst the public community, there's this perception that fire is a damaging process and it certainly can be, but fire is also an important sustaining process. We could say the same thing about rain in a sense, that we say, well, rain causes all these floods and then we have all this uh, erosion and then damage and so on, but without rain or water in the landscape, the landscape would die. And it's the same with fire. Fire is really important in providing an opportunity for plants to regenerate. It it cycles nutrients. It basically keeps uh, competition under control. It's an important environmental uh, component that we need. So, if we had more people in the the landscape, the people that it's not firefighters we need in the landscape. Really, it's people who understand fire, the fire managers, uh, who understand the use of fire to maintain these processes. So. The thing about doing prescribed burning in the landscape is that it needs to be done on a regular basis across the landscape, so whenever the opportunity arises. So we need people that are actually living out there, people who understand what the the plants and the animals and the soils are that they're dealing with. It's not just about dropping a match and and, uh, not letting it get out of control. You're trying to achieve particular environmental outcomes, and in doing that, you also uh, reduce the the flammability of the, the landscape. And that's what I guess people don't get. But from a political point of view, that's a long-term thing. It takes
2: mm.
9: uh, 20, 30 years to, to get that into place. And politicians, as we, we see with climate change, are just too impatient. They they don't have 20 or 30 years. They have a three- or four-year window before the next election. So mm-hmm. uh, we're getting poor, managements being, poor decisions being made because it's so short-term, whereas the environment actually requires long-term large-scale decisions being made.
4: And do you think that's why Royal Commissions, why well, there have been so many? Because it's a short-term... It's almost like a short-term um, kind of ticket to say, yeah, look, I'm, I, I've done that bit, I've cared enough, and we're doing a Royal Commission. And then kind of, OK, now move on to the next. Can, can we stop talking about that now? Do you know what I mean?
9: Yeah, so I think part of the thing about Royal Commissions, I mean, if you if you're a cynic, you'd probably say that it buys a year or two of time, Mm. which is long enough to get us to the next election. So it's um, the the, the hidden cost of the Royal Commission is all the cost for the land management agencies, the the fire agencies, the individuals and so on that are providing evidence. So the the, the 2009 Royal Commission in Victoria cost just the commission itself uh, had a budget of $40 million, but there would have been more than... Uh, double that uh, spent by or the, the the country fire authority and the the, the uh, land management authority what 's called DelP these days, um, in terms of the number of people that are running around collecting uh, information, putting it together into reports and providing it to the the commission, there are hundred million dollars or more being spent on that, and you think well those same resources and effort would have better been spent actually uh, improving the management of our our landscapes rather than uh, putting paper on um, into books on, to go on a sh- shelf and become dusty. So we really need the action out in the field in the rural areas and one of the other problems that I guess I've seen over m- my career is that more and more people are getting pushed into regional centres and, and uh, uh, metropolitan areas and so fewer and fewer people are actually working out in the, the field in the bush. And so they are dis- been disconnected from local communities and disconnected from the environment that they're trying to manage. So the, it becomes a almost a desktop exercise, which is not what is needed in this case.
4: Wow. And do you think, I mean, as you just said, people are spending less time in the bush, and do you think that, that means it's more and more important now to really try and preserve the knowledge that we have about, about how to holistically maintain these places uh, these this bush um, and also implement indigenous knowledge and teachings,
9: yeah, I think the the thing that I really um, sort of admire about I guess the indigenous way of dealing with things is how they pass the knowledge on um, through stories and and through sort of personal contact. In our modern world, we think, oh, as long as it's on a database on a computer somewhere and we can look it up with Google or, or whatever, then the knowledge is there. Well, that's not where it needs to be. It needs to be in people's heads. And so with uh, the traditional owners, they basically have this system where they understand the importance of different parts of knowledge and how to apply it across the landscape. And there are dire consequences for them if they didn't pass it on and it wasn't right, if you like, mm. because it's their livelihood and their welfare that they're uh, compromising. This sort of uh, catastrophe-driven uh, cycle that we, we, we're we seeing at the moment is is really just so damaging and the, the recovery time is going to, well, in some cases, won't recover at all, but in some cases it's going to take decades, mm. um, perhaps even a century or more, to recover from the amount of damage that's been done by the, the, some of these intensities. Fires that we've had across the landscape this
4: season. Yeah, and I just have one last question, um, mm-hmm. and that's really just: Do you think then that they, there will be another commission? I mean, just because of the, how intense these bush, this bushfire season has been, do you think the cabinet are likely to turn it away and say, "No, we have all the information that we need"?
9: No, look, almost certainly they'll have another commission because it buys some time. But if the focus is going to be on what the response was, they're already uh, looking in the wrong place. It's not about what the response was. It's about what was the precursor to all of this and what caused these problems in the first place, what, what's built up over the last 20 or 30 years to put us into this state. And it's going to be, in my view, a combination of uh, climate change, a combination of uh, poor land, uh, fire and land management over decades and also the the, the reduction really in the amount of knowledge and um, expertise of people working in rural environments to to actually implement the the fire and land management um, plans that we, we we should have in the, the in the landscape. Mm-hmm.
4: Thank you so much, Kevin, for chatting with us today. Um, yeah, have a lovely Monday, and hopefully speak to you soon. Thanks, Alice. Thanks so much. And that was Dr Kevin Tolhurst, an Honorary Associate Professor in Fire Ecology and Management in the Department of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences at the University of
2: Melbourne. (laughs) Mon étonne n'arrivée Mon égard commence à t'aider Qui s'assoupait à pousser Pour m'envoyer mon, mon amour N'y a pas façon pour arrêter moi fini de faire mon décision En chantant, en chantant Je me connais, je les bras. Mon arrivée dans les bras, mon chéri, n'a pas pris bon poisson, n'a pas pris bon moment. Voilà de paradis avec mon chéri, Que nous faisons en mer, la main dans la main, Nous commence à nous commence à rire, à cause nous amoureux, nous amoureux, oui. Là, mon arrivée dans les bras, mon chéri, oui. Mon arrivée est là, oui, mon arrivée, oui.
5: to Monday breakfast on 3CR and that was Montey there by Grace Barber um, we've just got a little link for you if if you're interested in supporting the save Gandolfo gardens campaign there's a petition on the, on the petition site com uh, that you can sign and and that's one one simple way of showing your support and saving that space So now we're going to speak to Cormac Mills-Richard, who's an organiser for Uni Students for Climate Change, as well as a general representative with the RMIT Student Union. Cormac is heavily involved in organising protests and rallies in Melbourne. And the most recent actions are responding to the bushfires and to government mismanagement and the climate emergency. Thanks for coming on the show, Cormac. Thanks a lot for having me. Cormac, could you be able to give us a, a recap of the rallies that have been taking place in Melbourne this summer? You know, how many people are turning up, what what the mood is?
11: Yeah, so we've been calling protests basically since the bushfires began, um, not only from December but uh, over the last couple of months as well. Uh, and recently we called a protest demanding the stacking of Scott Morrison, the funding of firefighters uh, and real action on climate change. And in all over Australia, it turned out about 100,000 people. In Melbourne, it drew out 30,000, and that was despite the utterly blasting rain. And the Victorian government and the Victoria Police basically telling us that we shouldn't be having our protest uh, and getting that quite widely published across mainstream media to try and quash it.
5: Oh, yeah I was going to ask you about that because it, it was that rainy day where the the big government and Victoria police were saying protesters shouldn't be going out today because you know it's going to take resources away from the fire affected areas. what do you, What do you think of that strategy?
11: Well, there's always a reason that we shouldn't be protesting now, um, and it's completely untrue that basically Victoria police are willing to support us or support our right to protest. Uh, the rest of the time, um, the Daniel Andrews' government has been pretty infamous in terms of not only arresting climate protesters, uh, but brutalising them, uh, for instance, at the blockade IMARC protest. Um, so it's completely untrue that they support our right to protest, uh, but it's also the case that um, the massive kind of police presence we have at each of these rallies is not something that any of us desire, it's not something that's needed for traffic control, uh, and it's basically there to intimidate us. So. You know, when people are saying, when you know, police or emergency services are saying, basically, like we need police out on the front. Uh, really, they're saying that you know we can't prioritise between repressing climate activists and helping people out on the front lines. Um, it's and as it emerged, um, we decided to go ahead with our protest. We weren't willing to have it be quashed because we're actually they were trying to weaponize the communities um, that we're actually protesting in support of. Um, and then it turned out that. The, there were going to be no police diverted from uh, the fire fireground, uh, so it was a complete lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah I
5: thought so. Um, yeah, that's that's fantastic. That you got thirty thousand people out despite you know despite that and despite the rain. It was a t- miserable miserable day. Um, you know, it can it can be really fatiguing uh, when you're facing such hu- huge issues. Um, ha- have you seen any any kind of that fatigue, or is there momentum that it just keeps building?
11: Yeah, I, I think it's definitely the case that it's just momentum. Um, I don't feel it at all. I don't feel like most people do. Um, you know, I mean, protests and activism contrast to the daily grind that people live in where most people have no real control over the work they do, don't really care about the results of it. And then you get out on the streets and for a while you really feel like you own them. Um, you're among people who are fighting injustice, people unite in a common hope for a better world. Uh, it's not fatiguing. It's, Totally exhilarating, and it's real in a way nothing nothing else really is. Um, you know, you're among people who are chanting in fury at one moment and then bursting into laughter the next when someone screws it
5: up. <laughs> and and you guys, um, you're, you're participating in the rallies, but you're also involved in organising these these rallies. What what kind of work goes into it? You know, that we don't see.
11: Yeah. Um, so I mean, the main work that goes into the rallies really is getting the word out. Um, and so some of the work that I do or have been doing recently has been doing things like writing press releases to combat the kind of media that's being put out against us um, and try and get a place in mainstream media because the fact is, you know, we don't have these um, uh, massive media outlets who are willing to pro- uh, promote our protests. So the main kind of work you end up doing is basically getting out onto the street. Uh, Running stalls to find people to talk to them to you know try and persuade them to come along, uh, giving out leaflets, putting posters up, um, you know doing work on social media to promote as well. Um, That's most of the legwork that really goes into it. Obviously, there's technical stuff as well, doing things like organising sound systems and the like, finding speakers to talk and that kind of thing.
5: No, it's good. It's good honest work. You're probably doing something wrong if it ends up on mainstream media. Um, Yeah. Uh, So what other rallies have you got planned over the few weeks? You've got one on Friday, is that right?
11: Yeah. um, So we're planning to have them kind of every week for the next while uh, until the bushfires let up or we get real action on climate change, and um, neither of those are looking to be soon. So this Friday uh, at 4.30 p.m., we're going to be gathering out the front of the Liberal Party headquarters on uh, 60 Collins Street in the the CBD, uh, and we'll be demanding... All the same things we've been demanding with, you know, the sort of lead thing has been for Scott Morrison to be sacked for his utterly criminal <laughs> negligence and complete obliviousness to what's going
5: on. And I don't think many people would argue against that. But I did notice one of your, um, one of your slogans has been um, uh, uh, system change, not climate change. And, you know, you can get rid of Scott Morrison, but, you know, you're just going to get a Scott Morrison clone in his place. What are you know, what's the integral kind of changes that we need to see happen?
11: Yeah, that's totally true. Um And we have had lots of people basically saying, I think some people do contest it, because they say, yeah, uh, getting rid of Scott Morrison wouldn't be enough. And it's true that it wouldn't be. To, it would be a massive victory for the climate movement, not only here and worldwide, to say that if you don't get action on climate change, uh, you get sacked. Um, but in terms of wider system change, it's the case that we need a complete restructuring of society. And it's not just radical saying that it's, Uh, a large section of scientists basically saying, I mean, you know, if you think about the kind of change we need for fossil fuels, we're looking at um, basically the decommissioning of most vehicles that rely on oil. Um, Obviously, that's really significant because, like, the US military is one of the largest producers of emissions in the world. Um, So, you know, you're massive obstacles there. We need the fossil fuel industry to be dismantled, the transition to renewables. Um, we need to change the way our cities our cities function so that we're not um, totally depleting the land, which has led to a lot of the desertification as well. Um, you know, We're also looking at end logging industries and that kind of thing. Um, so obviously there is massive structural change that's needed. Um, And currently what we're seeing right now is that both major parties and anyone who's going to be interested in running Australian capitalism basically has to be um, invested in expanding the fossil fuel industries. So it is going to be massive change one way or another that we're talking about. Uh, But the only route that you you can even imagine to that change is people getting out onto the streets um, until there are so many of us and we're taking such frequent action and shutting down the system as it is um, that we're going to see real action on climate change.
5: Well, thanks so much for coming on Monday Breakfast to talk to us this morning, Cormac. How can people get involved in organising or participating in these events?
11: Yeah, so if you're a uni student, you should absolutely sign up to Uni Students for Climate Justice. You can find a link to our uh, sign-up sheet on our Facebook page, just in the description. Um, But... Otherwise, you know, so it's really good to get more activists involved. We need more people out doing all that legwork, promoting and making these kind of decisions. Um, but otherwise you can also uh help support us. Uh we've got to go fund the up, we need to pay for things like speakers, hiring interpreters, um and otherwise you should just uh, get in contact with us, message the page, uh, get some posters and put them up in your local area, tell everyone about our rallies, tell everyone about this Friday and
5: Fantastic. Thanks for speaking to us this morning, Cormac, and enjoy the rest of your day.
11: Thanks so much. Have a great one.
5: See you. And here's Nank Bujak.
0: And now I'm going to be speaking with Joe Toscano. Uh, Joe hosts 3CR's weekly program Anarchist World, and he's going to be speaking with me today about the ceremony being held in commemoration of two freedom fighters, uh, Minoway and Morboi Hina. Hi, Joe. How are you? You there, Joe? Yeah,
12: I'm here. Hi, Joe.
0: So today's uh, ceremony is being held in commemoration of two freedom fighters, Mooboy Hina and Tuna Minaway, who were executed 178 years ago in what was Victoria's first public execution. Uh, can you tell us who Mooboy Hina and Tuna were and the story behind the commemoration? Uh
12: Tana and Mooboy Mawbo- Hina were uh, two uh, Tasmanian Aborigines who we were brought across with another 15 in 1839 to civilise the uh, Victorian blacks. They were basically the property of Mr uh, Augustus George Robertson, who was the man who was uh, uh, given the task of uh, rounding up the remnants of the Tasmanian Aborigines after the Thirty Year War, which led to the almost eradication of Aboriginal people in Tasmania. And he was able to uh, ran up about 323, which were then transferred to Flinders Island of them. Within about three years, uh, uh, there were only about 85 left, and 17 of them were brought across to uh, Victoria, or the uh, settlement in Melbourne, uh, and they were to be used uh, to, uh, in their words, to civilise the uh, Victorian blacks. Now, within a year or two, the arrangements fell apart. The food rations were stopped. Five of the 17, that was Tanaminoi, Mubohina, Planabina, Putirana and Traganini, took to the outskirts of Melbourne, the Dandenong Ranges, of the Mornington Peninsula, and began an armed resistance struggle which lasted about two months in that area, which caused a consternation and hundreds, if not thousands, of our squatters to flee back to Melbourne. And
0: given Hello? the... Hello. Sorry. And given the topic, I'm assuming it's going to be quite a sombre affair today. Uh, what will happen at the ceremony? Well,
12: yeah, look, it's a commemoration. Look, it's a, it's a, it's a two-pronged affair. Look, it took uh, a 16-year struggle to get a major monument erected the Tanaminoa the site at which they were executed at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street. Now, it's a two-fold affair. One, it actually uh, commemorates the execution of those two men and the injustice of what occurred on that day. Two, uh, we're interested in the last few years uh, since the monument was established in uh, 2016, we're interested in actually expanding the idea to the arrest of Australia and marking the 20th of January when these men were legally executed by the uh, British authorities as a day where local communities can actually remember the tens of thousands of uh, men, women and children who were uh, killed and uh, displaced in the colonisation process and the consequences of that process. Now, the uh, the um, I think the uh, the Bass the Bass um, the Bass around one second, the Bass Reconciliation Group is also holding a ceremony this morning at ten thirty. But uh, you know we've got Anzac Day, which uh, marks the uh, an important day in Australian history, which marks the sacrifices made by Australian men and women fighting other people's wars in other countries and other lands. But we have nothing in this country to actually mark the uh, murder and dispossession of tens of thousands of people who are defending their land, their culture. And so we'd like to see an expansion of this day, the 25th January, which obviously is about six days before Invasion Day, as a national day where communities actually, in conjunction with their local Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, friends um, come together to commemorate these people because each and every part of Australia has a history of resistance which has been ignored for far too long and that history of resistance and the people who paid the ultimate price for defending their land, their culture and their languages should be remembered nationally in this country.
0: And what role do events like this play in the reconciliation process, do you think?
12: Well, the first step to reconcile, whether it's with your parents or your brother or your sister or your workmate, is for people to acknowledge the past, to acknowledge the truth, to acknowledge what actually occurred to split people apart. So the first process of any reconciliation process is to acknowledge the past. And what this would do would actually mean that on a national scale, if we as Australians, we would be acknowledging that. Now, once people acknowledge the past, then you can take steps towards reconciliation. Without acknowledgement, there is no reconciliation.
0: And do you think acknowledgement and understanding of what has happened in our history is improving? It is.
12: Slowly, it is improved, but I have noticed that the uh, uh, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, its various arms, is really pushing uh, the concept of Invasion Day this year, and it's quite interesting. I'm using a lot of images of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in that advertising. So I think the authorities do feel a backlash, and that backlash doesn't come from uh, uh, local, state or federal governments or the business sector that... Backlash is coming from sections of the Australian community, both young and old, who think or believe or know that the only way to lance this uh, festering carbuncle that exists between Indigenous and non Indigenous Australians is by acknowledging the past. And by having a, a day set aside that acknowledges that is one way on a national uh, scale to do that. And the only way that's going to happen. Is going to be through local groups, local associations actually holding ceremonies on a particular day. And we think 20th of January is a a good day. It is six days from Invasion Day. It is a day that two men were, two uh, uh, young men were executed for uh, resisting armed resistance of colonization by the British authorities. Uh, I think it's an excellent day. should be taken over but as far as the ceremony today is it is a sombre affair we'll have uh, carolyn briggs who's the patron of the kataminua mooboy hina uh, commemoration committee puna elder. she will open up the proceedings with an acknowledgement of country and we have a number of uh, indigenous speakers mr robbie ford and lydia Thorpe, then we've got uh councillor Oak and councillor rohan lepart and then uh, dr jacob rumbiak who's the uh, treasurer for the uh, West Parliament Independence Movement. So, and obviously there'll be other speakers. then at one o'clock we will walk silently to the Queen Victoria market, to the uh, place where we think uh, their bodies were uh, buried under the market. We're quite confident of the site. So it, this has been going on since 2004. Uh, A criminal committee was set up in 2006. Anything like this is a long process. Over 228 years since colonization began, is a long process. But at some stage, we as a people need to acknowledge what occurred. Otherwise, any attempts at reconciliation will fail. As the Uluru Statement, as the representatives of the Indigenous community made at Uluru in 2017, acknowledgement of the past was one of their major three demands.
0: And, yeah, you mentioned it took 16 years before the monument was opened in 2016. Um, can That's you tell right. us about the process? What were the barriers you were facing? Why did it take so long?
12: Well, first of all, you need to remember this is the only major monument to the frontier wars in a major urban centre in this country. There are very few monuments to the Mon- Montreal uh, frontier wars. There's the Mile Creek Massacre uh, events which occur in New South Wales. There's a monument in West Australia and there's a few little other monuments everywhere. Now, obviously, and the process was a long process, I think it was in 2000, I actually uh, came across a book called Jack of Cape Grim, which was written by Jan Roberts, who's now dead, and uh, she uh, explored... Uh, what actually happened to these uh, these people, and uh, did this book Jack of Cap Gridman in, in uh, 1988 as a bicentenary project. After that, for a number of years, we discussed it amongst ourselves. That in 2004 we began holding ceremonies. In 2006, we actually formalised it and formed the commemoration committee, and then we had to involved in a long struggle which involved myself as the convener standing as Lord Mayor of Melbourne on two separate occasions to raise the issue as a matter of actually forming contacts with the more radical elements of the Indigenous community in Victoria because again you've got to understand the Indigenous community like any other community has a wide variety of views about a a large number of areas. After that it meant that negotiating with the Melbourne City Council at that stage was under the leadership of Robert Doyle who resisted tooth and nail. But eventually, Cathy Oak, who was the Green Council, the only Green Council of the Melbourne City Council, took up the issue in council. And over the next 10 years, a lot of agitating, uh, holding a ceremony, uh, going through uh, all these formalised processes, the council a de- made a decision to uh, give the land and uh, fund the erection of a the monument. There was a national uh, campaign among Indigenous artists to have chosen and the current monument is what was established in 2016.
0: All right. Well, thanks so much for speaking us to us today, Joe. I'll look forward to tuning in to the ceremony at midday today on yeah, 3CR. it's at 12
12: o'clock, 12 o'clock sharp. Uh, 3CR will actually be broadcasting the first hour of the ceremony, and obviously if you can't make it, uh, you should listen to the broadcast. Look, if you've got children, it's a, it's a family-friendly affair. I think the uh, hope doesn't lie with people like you and me. I think the hope uh, for reconciliation really lies with uh, this country's children, uh, understanding what occurred and uh, why uh, we are in this particular situation today. So if you've got children, they're on school holiday. it's a great way to uh, educate them about the past and, more importantly, show them a direction into the future.
0: Excellent. Thanks, Joe. Thank you
12: very much. All the best to you and all your listeners.
4: Thanks.
5: It was fantastic to hear from Joe. It's been such a busy show this morning. We just wanted to um, to give you a couple of uh, points of information. Uh, one one thing was to clarify on one of our earlier interviews. There was some past tense used when speaking about Indigenous land management, but it is ongoing um, on, on the sovereign Indigenous lands. And so we wanted to point you towards firesticks.org.au, which is an uh, organisation um, Indigenous-led Network ...aiming to reinvigorate the use of traditional knowledge and fire management. And they're asking for donations. You can go to chuffed.org slash project firesticks dash alliance. And you can also follow Victor Stephenson, who is an Indigenous specialist in traditional knowledge and fire management, on Twitter at V underscore Stephenson. And that's spelled S-T-E-F-F-E-N-S-E-N. I that's a lot of information for you guys. Uh, and one more thing about that petition for the Gandolfo Gardens, which is at the petitionstart.com. that's reached 788 of uh, 1,000 um, petitions so far. So please get on there and help them meet their goal of 1,000.
0: And for listeners wanting to find out more information, you can follow their Facebook page, which is Better Level Crossing Removals Some Moreland, or just check out the Yachtfield Corridor Coalition, which is organising the event on the weekend.
5: And another thing we wanted to tell you about is this Invasion Day at 11 a.m. at Parliament House. There's going to be a, a, a rally. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's around all, all these issues. Um, you know, pay, pay the rent. Um, uh, Stop so so black it.
4: deaths in custody. Sovereignty never ceded, obviously. Um, yeah, abolish Australia Day. So that's the Sunday, the 26th of January, 11 a.m., Parliament House, Spring Street, Melbourne. And I think that's the end of the show. That is,
5: that is. So thank you, thank you very much for listening in and, uh, and continue listening for Women on the Line.